This is Predictions, the podcast where we talk about the future. I'm your host, Konstantin, and I'm here with Ingmar. Hi. Today we want to talk about urbanization, whether this trend will continue or not, and what are the factors that drive it. Urbanization has been one of the big mega trends of the last century. It's one of those things that you can rely on when making predictions is that more people will live in cities percentage-wise and fewer people will live in the countryside. And very recently even there has been this shift where now there are more people living in cities than in the countryside. I think this happened only 10 years ago. And what we want to discuss today is whether this trend will continue, how far it will continue, will the countryside completely deplete Or will there be a reverse trend, um, villagization, ruralization, uh, that turns it around? And I think the core to understanding what the future will be is to understand history. And so, Ingmar, what do you think? Why was there this huge trend in the last hundred years of urbanization? Yeah, I think the very basic reason is that um, it has become, so our industry has become less and less focused on just industrial production or at least the industrial production um, relies less and less on human labor and it has become more and more focused on service and on professions that rely on large and very specialized talent pools and it was just a natural consequence that yeah as people moved away from working in agriculture to working as i don't know software engineers or yeah, accountants, um, cities became more and more important. Yeah, and it's interesting because basically the first phase of urbanization happened during the Industrial Revolution when people moved to cities before working in factories. And factories needed some kind of basic amount of population around them to just staff, staff the factories. And then there was a second wave of urbanization, I would say, in the last 30 years maybe last 20 years, where cities and, and um, clusters of cities are gaining traction worldwide as innovation hubs. So now we're talking about services and actually the same cities that have been driving the industrial revolution are now bleeding populations to other cities, even bigger cities, where people are going to work in the services industry. So there's kind of this staggered approach. And I think that's also... I think the kind of cities that were thriving during the Industrial Revolution have a bit of a different profile than the cities that are now thriving during the service revolution that we are experiencing. Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure, actually. I think in the Industrial Revolution, what the city needed was some minimum amount of people, but it was mostly about cheap labor. So people were leaving their farms, coming to the cities to work in a factory, but it wasn't really that important if the city had a hundred thousand people or three hundred thousand people as long as the industrial resources were around as long as you had coal in the area as long as you had waterways this was a city that would profit now it's a bit different the cities that are profiting now are really profiting um, through themselves so their main asset is no longer um, the waterways or the industrial um, sorry the resources but it's really the population and that's why now 
it really matters if you're a hundred thousand people or if you're a million people or if you're 10 million people if mm -hmm. i'm going to start a company and i go to a small city of course i can find people to staff the seats but i will not find the kind of experts that have experience in my industry in a startup in in this kind of environment and so yeah. i go to cities that are even bigger i go to cities that have a history have startup cultures so i go to new york i go to shenzhen i go to Beijing, I go to Silicon Valley. So I go to these hubs where even more people are clustering. So it's kind of ironic almost, but people living closely in even bigger clusters is becoming even more important in our so-called connected world nowadays than it was mm -hmm. maybe 50 years ago. Yeah, that's actually, it's actually an interesting point that sort of the first wave of industrialization was all about concentrating um, like resources for production <laughs> including human labor but it was not yeah. so much about concentrating specialized human labor yeah and you see even bigger cities popping up right so now cities if you're just a million people you maybe don't have all the specialists that you need so now you need to be like four million people or yeah. 10 million people and i think i think that's an interesting change because it's it's even pushing towards even bigger cities and you kind of especially in the western world you see this draft where people are leaving smaller cities and moving to even bigger cities. And almost the definition of a city is almost changing. If, if you're like 50,000 people, that was a big city yeah. 100 years ago, but nowadays it's almost a village. Mm. And I think it's not just because we have more people in the world, but also because the kind of economy that you could have with 50,000 people 100 years ago was competitive with the economy that you could have with 100,000 or a million people, more or less, Because I think human labor was more commoditized. So you could, if, if, as long as your factory didn't need more than 50,000 laborers, you were fine. Yeah. Nowadays, it's, it's, more, it's much less commoditized, it's much more specialized. And so, actually, the size of cities becomes even more important. Yeah. So yeah. I think we are seeing a second wave of urbanization, especially in the developed world, um, where people are going to cities not to work in factories, but to work as specialists. I like to say it's the secondary contraction where like smaller cities are now bleeding into bigger cities yeah i mean everything we just said is basically just a way to say that the threshold to have the most profitable economy has risen steadily in the last years right and yeah. now you could yeah. argue that a city that is less than i don't know one million inhabitants is not able to have a internationally competitive economy and that was completely yeah. different even 50 years ago or probably even 30 years ago But I think it also has to do with the fact how cities have become attractive to workers. For example, if you look just in the recent podcast, we talked about Tesla coming to Berlin. Why are they going to Berlin? Why not to the south of Germany? Turns out a big part of it was because Tesla thinks that Berlin is an attractive city for people to move to. Yeah. I think 50 years ago, people were less worried whether they would move to a big city or to a small city because they didn't think it would affect their social life as much. But nowadays it's a bigger factor. So there's also yeah, this effect of the cities being trendy and bigger cities being trendier. And like the social aspect that's driving urbanization in a developed world nowadays. Mm -hmm. so, so in a way you could say that we don't only see a specialization in, in labor, but also a specialization in just what people you want to hang out with, right? People become more more specific about what kind of environment they like and what kind of stuff they want to do. And this is kind of parallel with uh, this 
this company is becoming more specific uh, about what people they, they want to hire. Actually, that's super interesting if you think about it. So basically, it could be hypothesis that social media, which is making people more connected worldwide, actually drives um, the drive into bigger cities. Yeah. Because people realize that, oh, there are other people like me in the world. I don't have to adjust. I don't have to become like the others. There is a place where I can meet people who are more like me. And this place usually is the big city, right? Because yeah. there is this critical mass. So interestingly, the internet is favoring the growth of cities. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting because yeah. um, everybody talks about how, how internet will allow remote work and will actually make cities less important because you can talk to other people across distances more easily and you can collaborate more easily. And yet we have seen this huge trend of people moving to cities, this huge social trend. And that could be an explanation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the hypothesis there is that you can kind of substitute the lack of diversity in your everyday life in the sense that, so, so the lack of, I don't know, people who really have the same interests as you when you live in a small town. Um, so the hypothesis is that you can kind of substitute that with, yeah, with the internet, right? <laughs> with yeah. connecting with people remotely and in the same way substitute actually going uh, to your workplace physically with working remotely. But it could also be that the ability to see what things exist in the world in the first place have the opposite effect. Right. Yeah, it's like a gateway drug. Yeah. Like you see, okay, there are people like me. Yeah. There are people who think like me. There are people yeah. who want to do the things that I want to do. I don't have to play soccer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I want to go to this place. Yeah, yeah I, I don't have to play soccer. I can play. What do pipsters play? <laughs> Viking uh, Viking chess. Yeah, probably in the park. 3D. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Interesting. That's cool. But there's a point there, especially with remote work, that it's. It seems so ridiculous that you would move to a large city, pay insane amounts of money for housing, um, when everything you do is just exchanging knowledge and um, like non-physical labor. Um, yeah. So I, I totally see that point of um, the internet and remote work kind of working against this urbanization. I think remote work is growing. I mean, that's not the thought, that's a fact so more and more people are working remotely and i think also the kind of the kind of work that happens remotely is changing i think remote work is still being held back a lot behind where it could be and i think those are mainly two factors that's holding remote work back number one is um, the tooling most people who work remotely nowadays they um, they don't go online in a video conference to talk to their colleagues so they don't they don't create they don't recreate the office atmosphere and mm. So when you work remotely, especially if you work part-time remote, it ends up being this one day where you have much less supervision, where you have much less interaction, and where you have a lot of people experience this, and I've experienced this myself, you have much less motivation to get something done. So it becomes kind of the slow day, the lazy day. And I think that that really hurts remote work because it makes people think that remote work is like... Uh, it's like a day off, but not quite a day off. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I, th I think that there is... The, the tooling is missing and also the social change is missing for people to accept that okay i'm working remotely i'm working from home but i'm still at work 
right? So yeah. I still have to be reachable. I still have to talk to colleagues. It's okay if other people can see me work. And I think that um, that's not really there yet. And then there's this huge async work movement, which <laughs> I really think is really harmful for remote work. Yeah. Um, because asynchronous I basically, working, you mean? <clears throat> yeah, asynchronous yeah. work. So this idea mm -hmm. that, okay, we don't have meetings anymore because we uh, do everything over documents and it's all in GitHub and we just improve it. Uh, yeah. This works for certain industries to some extent, but I think there is there are also drawbacks to that. There are disadvantages. There are people who don't work with that as well. And I'm sure most team leads, most bosses, most company owners are scared by that. Mm -hmm. And I think partially wrongly, partially rightfully, but they're scared and they don't want to do async work. And I think then when people go and they say, I would like to work remotely, and that means I want to work async, then you're like conflating these two things and you're making this a much bigger issue and it becomes much harder to do the transition other than just sending people home and telling them, okay, you're going home, but we still want you to be in the meeting. We still want you to be reachable. And I want to see that you're sitting at your desk. Turn on your camera. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I, I think there are tools that do that already. Um, yeah, there like are, yeah. Communication tools where you can actually, like, it's just a virtual space where you can just, like, have the virtual equivalent of walking by a person's desk. Uh, and yeah. I, I agree that kind of stuff is really important, um, at least for me. And I think I, I work similar to you in that respect, that um, I'm not that motivated when I'm not at work. And also, yeah. it kind of makes me a little bit depressed after after a while. <laughs> yeah, I get <laughs> so depressed I, too. Like. Yeah, I, I enjoy doing it for like one time or, or one day a week, something like that, yeah. which is already a big advantage. Mm. Um, but I, I think I couldn't do it every day in the way it's done right now. But yeah, I, I agree. It's It sounds a lot like a problem that should be solved and it should be solvable. Yeah, I mean, let me paint you this picture. Imagine you had in your house an office that is dedicated to work. And that office is built like a virtual office. You know, like you have a big screen on your side, on the side of your office where you can see your colleagues and you have uh, microphones throughout the room so you can walk around the room, but they can still hear you so that you don't have to sit at your desk yeah. and speak into a microphone. And, <clears throat> and you have cameras so that when you move around the room, they can still see you. And on the other side of your room, maybe you have a whiteboard that's interactive. So you can draw with your colleagues together on the whiteboard. And so the moment you come into your room, you open the door, you turn on your equipment and you see your colleagues on the screen. Yeah. And so it's you, these people that you're sitting with in the office, usually you already have there. And um, you don't have to call them, you're in the call with them. Mm -hmm. So they, somebody says something, you hear them. So I'm not saying this is the way everybody should work. I'm not saying this is perfect. I think there's a place for async work. I'm sure there's a place for other forms of work. But I think this is also something that could exist. And I feel like this whole discussion around remote work equals async um, is, is kind of holding back these other developments. I like that idea. And I think you have, would have to include like informal chatter and I mean, which would obviously <laughs> yeah. happen, but I, I mean, it would probably make sense to kind of <laughs> simulate uh a situation of eating lunch together as well yeah right? famous Because, water cooler talk yeah exactly so yeah. i don't know may, maybe everybody orders something to eat at the same time then they sit in their room i mean it sounds it sounds a little bit uh, ridiculous but i think that is really the kind of stuff that that separates inefficient remote work from efficient remote work but 
then again, I, I know for a fact that there are people who, who tell me that they're much more efficient working from home. I don't know if they yeah. are more lucky with that. Actually, my, my girlfriend is. She said, says that, that when she's at the office, she basically gets distracted all the time. But she's also that kind of person that can just sit down and concentrate for 10 hours straight. I can't. I'm, I'm easily distracted by myself. So it's actually, for example, it's actually even better for me to, yeah, to, to have some, some, some type of social supervision. Yeah, but again, that really depends on the person. And I agree, uh, asynchronous work and remote work are different things. And if you mix them up in the discussion, it, it really hurts. I think it's a super interesting domain. I think the day when we will start having lunch together in virtually connected rooms, I sound like an IBM executive, but um, I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I, think, I think that we need to have some amount of social change and some, some kind of new behaviors for remote work to really take off. And then we need to accept that you're still at work and that you don't have an expectation of privacy when you're working remotely. Yeah. And this also implies that you need a room in your home where you have privacy and you don't have other people walking around in the background. And then that may drive people to work more <laughs> from the countryside and be less in cities, just to get the curve <laughs> back to the topic. <clears throat> But it, um, even now, without all this social change when it comes to remote work, without the good tooling, by the way, most video conferencing tools are shit because they have huge latency. And if you have a big conference, it's very hard to get what other people are doing right now. There's always a delay between people speaking and then people start speaking at the same time because of that. So that's another whole other topic. <laughs> um, but even, even with the shitty tools that we have right now, even with all the problems and wrong expectations that come with remote work, it's still a huge trend that's growing. And I think that especially for families or for people who want to live in the countryside, maybe don't want to live in the cities where there's a lot of cars, where there's a lot of traffic, for them it becomes more of an option now, maybe than it was 10 years ago. And I think this may be also a trend that may then spill over in other, in other parts of society in the next 10, 20 years. So I could actually imagine some kind of reversal, especially when it comes to the like, highly connected, highly educated demographic. Uh, maybe people with families, then they would move back to the countryside mm. after being in a city like for 10, 20 years. Yeah. Another interesting thing, I mean, you cite the advantages of, of living in rural areas. And I, I think that another de development we are going to see is that cities become more attractive. In terms of traffic, you mean, or in terms of... Yeah, I mean, at least, at least in Europe, you really can see a shift from, I don't know, in the 60s, it was all about cars. <laughs> now people start mm -hmm. to understand that this is not the way to go and uh, they start to care more about um, cyclists also I, I don't know I mean as soon as we have electric cars this will be a, an advantage for cities again and I also think that that some of the disadvantages of cities are really going to be alleviated in the mm -hmm. near future what are those disadvantages aside from traffic pollution noise and dangerous traffic <laughs> okay so, so that's not a side from traffic <laughs> but I mean I, you could yeah. just name it twice because no. I, I think this is really what what families care about maybe crime as well yeah I'm not sure about crime though that's yeah. a political social thing and that's a big wild card in the developed world when you talk about the future of cities this whole political aspect of it right so will cities be safe in future how will communities 
keep together, like support each other in cities? Will people leave cities again to live in more segregated environments? Will cities segregate internally? Um, I think what we've seen is this huge trend of gentrification in the past. So basically the poor, unsafe areas were pushed outwards and the inner cities became safer. But now then you have these um, banlieues, right? You have the outer outskirts of the cities that are becoming more dangerous. And I don't know how this will spill back maybe in the inner city center at some point. And I think these are the big unknowns that are always hard to talk about, especially as technologists. <laughs> um, and I think they have, a, they have a very big impact on where people want to live, where people want to go, Yeah, um, that we should never, never forget to consider. Yeah. Do you think that given that cities grow larger, do you think that they will become denser as well? See, that, that's another political thing, right? Because density is mostly governed by zoning laws. A lot of density that we enjoy nowadays, if you think maybe about the Paris city center or a London city center, like historic density would be illegal nowadays. I think if you just allow development without any regulation, I think they will become denser because um, the price is going up in cities um, for good reasons and for bad reasons. And so there is a motivation to share the space more efficiently. But I'm a bit worried, and this is a political statement, I'm a bit worried that an over-regulation in terms of zoning, not in my backyards, will, will make it impossible to build enough density in the city centers. At least in Europe. Also in the United States as well. I think, think about Silicon Valley, think about San Francisco, the issues that they're having, the huge fights they have uh, for every, every new apartment building. Regulation that requires that you cannot have more than two families on a lot Yeah. in certain zoning areas so it's really crazy and also there are other regulations that make it harder right so parking regulations right you need this many parking spots per per apartment yeah. and um, there are regulations in germany that require you to have this much so you cannot have much more than x amount of floor space per area <laughs> right so if i build something on a square on a square kilometer i cannot have more than x amount of floor space and this changes of course from area to area And I understand that we need zoning laws, right? I don't want people to build anything. But I think that zoning laws can also prevent cities from becoming denser. And if you think about a city like Tokyo, which is extremely dense, extremely effective, one thing that Japan doesn't have much are zoning laws. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, the, the fundamental problem here is that the zoning laws are basically made uh, by the people that already live in the city. <laughs> And yeah. I mean, it's probably a good assumption that people who actually own real estate are a little bit more active in that respect. And so it's, it's in a, in the way, not, not self-regulating, right? So just because there's mm. more demand uh, for housing doesn't mean that the zoning laws will be um, adapting to that. So yeah, I, I share that concern actually. I kind of have the hope that transportation will become so much more efficient that yeah we can just increase the size of our cities without increasing the density but then the cities would maybe lose some of their appeal right because you don't i think the one thing that's nice in cities nowadays and why people want to move there also is because you can walk a lot of distances especially when it comes to getting your groceries going to the post office I mean, to get your parcels from Amazon. Well, that's really a things. European city you're talking about there. No, I'm also talking about cities like New York or San Francisco. I think people are used to go to the shop, used to go to the bakery, used to get a coffee by foot. 
And I think that um, if you have much lower density cities, like maybe LA, something, I think it's a different culture. And yeah, maybe you still have cities there and maybe they have a lot of the benefits that other cities have, but I think some of their appeal will be lost for some people. Yeah. So we need to change zoning laws, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I try to keep politics a bit out of the podcast always, but I think it, it's very hard to talk about uh, cities without talking about politics. And there's another political topic um, that is the prices of real estate in cities. The known fact is that prices of real estate has gone up in cities a lot in the past 10 years, at least since the housing crisis in the United States, um, has been very persistent trend in Europe as well. And I believe it's similar in other parts of the world. And I think part of that is need. More people moving to cities needs more space. And then it's also driven by speculation and cheap money, cheap capital, pushing the prices upwards. I agree. So I, I think we, we see kind of a superposition of actually a rise in demand on the one hand and on mm. the other hand, some, some type of bubble that is fueled by low base rates from the central bank. At, at least in Europe, that's the case. But yeah. capital is cheap all over the world right now. And yeah, many people invest in real estate. And so at least what you see in Germany is a detachment between prices to rent and prices to buy housing. The returns on investment go down when you buy something because you can only rent it for a very small fraction of your purchase price. Exactly. And it's also another way of saying that the price becomes detached from demand. Uh, mm. But yeah, take this with a grain of salt, but because rental prices, at least in Germany, are heavily regulated again. But at least in Berlin, what we don't see is that the prices to buy real estate reflect that regulation. And yeah. I think this is a pretty clear sign that the market is not only driven by actually just by demand, but also by the expectation that real estate prices or real estate demand um, will continue to rise in the future. Which is called speculation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't think speculation is bad per se, because rising prices also mean that anything that can be built will be built. So it, it increases the supply a little bit and, and then has also an effect on rental prices. Um, but I think, I think the detachment between rents and purchase prices in cities is the same detachment that you see between capital and cost of capital, right? Like nowadays capital, especially if you have access to bigger pools of capital, then capital basically is free. And so you just get your free capital, buy some buildings with it, heavily financed usually, and then then you're still better off than paying negative interest rates, right? So there is there is a strong pressure from capital just trying to find places that are safe, that are basically equivalent to a savings account, and um, real estate in cities is considered to be something like that. But mm -hmm. do you think this will actually hold? Because even even in such a situation people may stop agreeing that real estate is a valuable currency. <laughs> you never know, right? Uh, but I think that the prices are kind of realistic in the sense that they are, they live a little bit in the future. Hmm. As you said, it's speculation, so it's the expectation that is going to be like that. So the expectation is that this price is going to be right. And borrowing money is basically 
traveling to the future in the sense yeah. that, that that you do something that you could actually just afford like in 10 years from now so the prices that we see are also from the future right <laughs> in a way i mean but traditionally asset prices would reflect returns on investment so i think uh, they would reflect an expectation of increased rents in 10 20 years and yeah. i'm not sure if they do that because You can also, when you have assets and you ha when you have very cheap capital, you can see effects where assets turn into currencies, right? People just start agreeing that this thing is valuable and its price becomes detached from its utility and becomes detached from its return on investment. It becomes a pure speculative thing, like the price of gold is purely speculative and not related to the utility of gold. And you may see something similar with real estate. And I think that is really harmful for cities because it makes it harder for people to buy a state in cities, makes it harder for people to move into cities. And that may also be an effect that hurts the trend of urbanization. Or at least delays it, right? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, these are always temporary effects usually. And uh, the bigger trends, uh, the social changes may not affected by these kind of speculative bubbles or other things yeah, yeah they, they are often temporary only and then at some point get even evened out by the bigger stronger trend yeah yeah i also think so i think the 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 long-term development that um just production or the economy is moving away from industrial production and moving to service-based industries um this is just so fundamental that it's much more long-term and it will be superseded by those kind of effects which may harm it or at least delay it in a short term but mm. yeah but i actually think um increased mobility maybe autonomous cars that allow very long-term very long distance commutes and and also especially remote work they may actually be trends that are significant enough to um, reverse or at least soften the trend of urbanization that's caused by the specialization of labor. I also hope so. <laughs> I mean, that's what I keep <laughs> telling myself. <laughs> Do you want to live in a city? Um, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think that I necessarily want to do that. No. I, I keep going back and forth also myself. I think um, some days I really want to live in the countryside because. It's nice if you can go outside, you have a terrace, maybe you have a garden, uh, you can walk, you have less pollution, less noise. And uh, I have this dream of being able to work remotely, but still be connected to my team through some kind of, you know. Yeah. This is an overused term, but I will use it virtual presence <laughs> office. And I um, it actually. <laughs> um, I mean, the virtual presence, you know, these little robots, these iPads on two wheels. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like, they drive like around and then people say this is the future of medicine <laughs> or something like that so, have you seen Big Bang Theory I think Sheldon uses one at some point Yeah. so yeah this is virtual present but that's not the one I mean I mean the real one where, where you can hear your colleagues across distances without having to sit in front of a computer where you can see them without having to sit in front of your desk and where you can work with them on a whiteboard without I don't know having to share your computer screen and click with a mouse so that's what I mean when I talk about virtual presence. And I think that's a huge opportunity if it becomes real for people to move more worldly. And it may also 
combat the social isolation. You could even think of people having social meetups in these kinds of rooms. But on the other hand, I like living in a city, you know, there's always something going on. I like construction projects. <laughs> and I, I like going out and seeing the Tesla factory being built. And I like seeing the new trains running on the circle line. And I, I like all this stuff and it's exciting. And I think cities are exciting. And so I think there is something that still holds me here. I also like have this have this daydream of living, I don't know, in a very green valley somewhere in, in Norway and having my starlink dish so i'm connected to everybody and just mm -hmm. i don't know sitting on my on, in my front yard and and working from there backyard you mean <laughs> doesn't matter there's nobody around so um, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> yeah but yeah i agree i think that apart from economic factors there are other factors we also talked about that make people want to move to to cities and um yeah so i agree that remote work if it really becomes big and prevalent it won't it won't revert that trend of urbanization mm. i mean i think it could revert it actually <laughs> i mean i was talking about myself but if i look at the population as a whole i could imagine that uh, remote work could change that trend actually yeah so let's put some numbers out there 1950, you had 30% of the world population living in cities. Now, in 2050, it's about 60... But no, wait. That's, that's <laughs> a projection I'm reading here. Wow. <laughs> no, I'm cheating. Spoiler. I'm cheating. <laughs> right. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm ignoring the projection. Um, 2010, no, wait, 2020, um, we have almost 50, a bit more than 50% uh, of the world's population living in cities. Um, so we are just over the tipping point where we have now a majority living in cities. And what would you say is your projection for 2050? So this, this graph here, just so we are on the same page, it says 60%. <laughs> I actually think it's going to be more because I think it is often underestimated how much we will be able to automize. And because I think this is the most important trend driving the urbanization i think that it will be around 70 percent of all people living in large cities this is the number for for the entire world right and like in western countries we are already quite urbanized and our mm. industry is already on uh service-based widely but mm. then you have like countries in africa that are still mainly agriculture and mm. There, there is still a huge potential. Um, just mm. to give you a number, I think in Germany, it's, it's one farmer producing enough food for 200 people now. Mm. Only. It's still less than in the States, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah. And so I think if you look at, at third world countries, there's really a lot of potential. I completely agree. I think this prediction is um, for, I think for Germany or for the developed world, I would say that we are almost at the peak urbanization or let's say as a, as a, we're close to a maximum where the whole trend will flatten but i believe we're already at 85 something like that and worldwide i think the, the trend is still driven a lot by the shifting of sectors as you said from agriculture to industrial and from industrial to service and so i think that 
when we look at the whole world, basically we can just interpolate from what we're seeing today in the developed world and assume that the same thing will happen will happen to the developing world, bearing any big catastrophes mm-hmm. like climate change, yeah, and political issues. But if we dis- disregard these at the moment and if we assume that they don't affect these major trends, um, which is a big if, then I would say I would just say in 2050, which is another 30 years, we will have seen so much development in the developing world that we will probably approach a number of the developed world. So I would also go like even 80%. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's that's mostly not driven by any of the trends that we discussed, but just about the bigger trend of sectors shifting that is already completed in the developed world mostly, yeah. but is still going on in the world. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we we, we discussed lots of things, but I would agree that this is so powerful and so fundamental Mm. that on the long term, right, in 30 years, it will basically uh, outlive every other trend that we see now. Okay. Anything else? No, I think that's it. (laughs) Different this time. Different. (laughs) I see you're taking the lead here. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's all I wanted to say. All right. I think we are ready for the future. <laughs>